There's actually a tremendous amount of research that shows that love helps us learn. Love helps us grow, love helps us thrive, love helps us be better people. Languages belong to communities. They provide shared identity. They're the way we mother our children and, you know, connect with each other. They are not tools that we use to produce money. <laughs> they are they are tools we use to produce relationships. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Dr. Stacy Johnson follows up on her talk about problem-based models for language and culture instruction and describes the transformative power of the language classroom. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to speak with Dr. Stacy Johnson today. Stacy gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on problem-based models for language and culture instruction, and we will extend our conversation about these practices on our podcast. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Stacy. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. All right. Well, we like to start out our podcast by asking our guests about their background and path with languages. So how did that all start for you? Um, well, I, I'm i a language teacher, and, and personally and professionally, it's a really important part of my identity. But I didn't know I was going to be a language teacher until I already was one. Mm -hmm. um, I thought I was getting a master's degree in romance languages and then was going to go on to work in nonprofits mm -hmm. in multilingual communities. Um, but it, I had a weird opportunity um, to fill in as a temporary Spanish instructor at my local community college hmm. just by virtue of being in the right place at the mm -hmm. right time, having the right master's degree and knowing the right language. Um, and so I, I taught for about six weeks at the end of a semester to fill in for a faculty member who had to be out and I loved it. And mm -hmm. so the next year, when a tenure track position opened up at that community college, yeah. I applied for it. And since they already knew me, they hired me. Nice. And I, that was more than 20 years ago. And I have really been obsessed with this profession yeah. ever since then. Obviously, I've always been the kind of person who loves languages, loves being around multilingual people. That's just sort of wired into who I am. Mm -hmm. And it's something I've explored. Mm -hmm. But being a language teacher specifically is like one of, it's one of those paths where you know you're never done learning how to do it well. You're mm -hmm. always learning from other people. You're always networking. Yeah. Your students teach you. Your colleagues teach you. And um, so I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to run out of things to do in this profession. <laughs> I think I'm here for the long run. Beautiful. Nice. So, Stacey, many of our listeners are familiar with task-based and project-based language learning. Your talk focused on problem-based models for language and culture instruction. What is a problem-based approach? Right. So, it's really similar to task-based and project-based. So, if you're already familiar with that, you already know what the basic constructs are. Um, task-based language teaching is one of the most well-researched mm -hmm. classroom strategies or methodologies for language teaching. Um, so we have a lot of data to draw on from the last couple decades yeah. in that area, and we can take all of those lessons and apply them to problem-based learning, which is great. Project-based learning uses uh, much of the same, like, big-picture, 
rooted in educational theory and practice approach, what makes uh, problem-based learning, and actually, let me back up one step. All three of these start with an experiential learning Mm -hmm. mindset. That language isn't something we learn about. Language is something we do. Language is active participation and communication. So how can we get students, even at the lowest levels, having authentic language experiences, communicating meaningfully and purposefully, um, and project-based learning and task-based learning both do a really great job of presenting us with roadmaps to get our students where we need them to go. Now, where I am veering off into a problem-based model is really rooted in adult learning theory and literature, and that Mm -hmm. is because that's my particular disciplinary expertise. So I'm trying to apply what I know about how adults grow and learn and change over their lifespan to the specific uh, challenges we face in the language classroom. So a problem-based model is going to bring in um, ideas about how adults change their mind and become more interculturally competent, more open to new experiences, more open to people who are different than themselves, Mm -hmm. um, and how we learn and acquire not just language, but new skills in general Mm -hmm. through language teaching. Now, whenever I say that, some, some people cringe a little bit and say, we have to keep language acquisition at the center. And and so I do want to emphasize, yes, language acquisition is still the goal of problem-based learning, but it's recognizing that if we um, have a, a classroom that's exclusively focused on communication without thinking about what's the content of our communication and how is this communication helping us to become better people hmm better participants yeah. in a multilingual world, more ethical people, mm. then we're sending out people who are, who can be very offensive in a new language uh-huh. when they meet new people, mm-hmm. who can hurt people's feelings in sure. a new language, who can cross barriers that we don't want them to cross. Um, so the structure, that's the, the idea. Mm-hmm. The structure of problem-based learning is that we start with a question that centers Difference, social problems, social hierarchies, explorations of power sometimes. Um, So interesting questions might be, what is the importance of people's names? Or um, why do some people not have access to housing? Mm -hmm. Or where does our food come from? Um, These are questions that lead us to instead of just accepting sort of the mainstream narratives of what are the, I teach Spanish, so what are the five most common Mm -hmm. names for Mm -hmm. Spanish speakers versus the five most common names for English speakers, which are these huge generalizations, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. asking what's the meaning of a name can allow us to hear people's stories and find out what their name means to them and compare it to our closely held cultural Mm -hmm. and personal beliefs, right? Um, So we start with an interesting question, and then students gather resources in order to answer that question or address that question. Then students work in group to compare and contrast their resources and come to some sort of a conclusion. And then finally, they report out on what conclusion they drew or how they answered the question. So this can be a very small-scale thing, like task-based language teaching, Mm -hmm. where in one lesson, we start with a question, we analyze resources We compare and contrast those resources, and then we report out on our findings, and it can follow a task-based model almost exactly. Or it could be a a larger scale, like project-based learning, 
where we take several weeks or even an entire course to mm-hmm. answer one big question like, um, you know, why are people homeless? That mm-hmm. could be a question mm-hmm. we spend mm-hmm. an entire sure. semester trying sure. to answer. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. You you said something during your talk yesterday that really resonated with me. And it was roughly, it was, if we want to learn a new language, we'll be more effective if we have emotional attachments with the people we want to communicate with. Um, and I think that's just beautiful. And you're already sort of unpacking that a little bit with what you're saying now and, and hopefully um, more along the way today. But... Um, just a, a quick follow-up on on that. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about how teachers can integrate this approach at different levels of instruction, especially the novice level. Yeah, so uh, I'm really... I, I love that you connected with that, especially because I think there's a lot of um, impulse in some of our more... I'm making air quotes, objective, Mm -hmm. academic literature Mm -hmm. that we don't want to talk about affect or emotional attachment. We we don't want to use the love word Mm -hmm. in what we talk about, what we research. But um, there's actually a tremendous amount of research that shows that love helps us learn. Love helps us grow. Love helps Mm -hmm. us thrive. Love helps us be better people. Um, So I want my students to love the people and the cultures that we're studying. And I actually shy away from saying I want them to love the culture because... Sometimes that can be a little bit objectifying. Like, I love your culture. You, I could take it or leave it. Uh-huh. But your culture is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And I want I want my students to love people. I want yeah. them to yeah. forge connections with people who are very different from themselves and realize that the world is bigger and more beautiful than they knew in their limited experience so far. Um, and I that's my personal belief. Like, that's my starting place. And then... Um, imagine my amazement to find that academic literature supports that uh-huh. that is actually a really positive <laughs> growth experience how, for adults. How wonderful. Because what do we always hear is like, what are the jobs you can get if you yeah. study a language at the end? Like, fine. Like, yes, that's useful. I get why why that's the pitch because it's practical. But also... Like what's the I'm I'm always looking for more of a why than that. Yeah. So Terry Osborne calls those the the capitalism mm-hmm. reasons mm-hmm. for learning language. Actually, that is not his exact words because he doesn't use a noun there, but I can't remember what the exact words, but it's capitalism in an adjective form. <sighs> so that's that's our neoliberal reason for learning language. That's our capitalistic approach to language consumption. If I consume this language, then it will produce some result for me. Yeah. Um and like more power to people who want to have good jobs and provide for their family. I'm all for that. Um, however, languages belong to communities. They provide mm-hmm. shared identity. They're the way we mother our children and, you know, connect with each other. They are not tools that we use to produce money. Yeah. <laughs> they are wh- they are tools we use to produce relationships. And so I personally am starting from that point And I think there's a really good case to make for marketing languages to people who do have more transactional reasons for learning them. But once they come to my classroom, I want them to leave with something other than a transactional reason for learning a language. And so we do focus on individual people, um, developing the types of intercultural competence skills that are going to help us communicate across difference with each other, because sometimes we have differences with each other in the same classroom. And how we might be able to apply those mm-hmm. same skills 
with people who are in the language communities we're learning about. Um, so from a problem-based approach, I want my students to understand that we have local language communities and global language communities that are facing similar issues to the ones that we face. Those issues or their, those problems are already being addressed by people who live in those communities. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're not saying, let's take the problem of homelessness in Mexico City, for example, and at, let's us as college students <laughs> solve it. the yep. problem of homelessness in Mexico, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. right? So we're, we're not thinking that we're going to help them actually address the problem of homelessness. Sure. We're answering the question of how are people addressing the problem of homelessness. Yeah. Um, and so we look at real people who are doing the work, real nonprofits mm -hmm. who are helping the unhoused. We compare policies that have been effective. You know, there's so many resources online where we can actually read about the people, the organizations, and the policies that are addressing that issue. And then we can compare those to things in our local community mm -hmm. or in our, you know, other situations that that we want to. So mostly I teach very low level students first and second semester. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about these things in English, it makes it sound like, oh, this is a graduate seminar on homelessness. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I'm talking about like BuzzFeed style articles with pictures and headlines mm -hmm. about five things this person is doing in her community to clean up trash, right? Yeah. And we're, we're using very accessible resources. I'm doing serious critical thinking and using the language from the resources to help us describe what's happening in our own world. So, for example, how do you clean up trash on campus? Mm -hmm. Well, let's read about how this person in Guatemala is picking up trash in her neighborhood. And let's think about are any of those same strategies possible here? Yeah. So once we've learned how to say, you know, she organizes a Saturday event. That's easy to say even, you know, a few mm -hmm. weeks into first semester. Mm -hmm. And so I can say to my class... Have you organized a Saturday event? And people can say yes or no. Do you want to organize a Saturday event? People can say yes or no. Mm -hmm. So we can have really serious conversations about critical issues, learn about real people and the problems that they're facing in their communities without being paternalistic and without using language that's too advanced. That's awesome. You just mentioned this, and you also talked about it in, in your talk, about this notion of critically engaging with difference to allow your students to examine difference and to reflect on it. Can you expand on that a little bit? I would love to because this is something that's been such a learning journey for me. Mm -hmm. um, I imagine that most people who are in languages were the kind of people who said something that's different. That's amazing. I yeah. love different things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in my first, some students in their first year have a tendency to say, oh, this is a weird culture. They do X weird and Y weird. It's so weird. Um, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, a lot of our textbooks perpetuate mm -hmm. that yeah. with uh -huh. the type of cultural sure. sidebars. Yep. <laughs> like, have you ever heard of eating rice for breakfast? And, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. our American students are like, so weird. Only 75% <laughs> of the population does it. It's so weird. Um, so, however... My experience was almost equally as objectifying where every single thing that was different, I was like, different from me is better than me. And so now uh -huh. I, I'm going to, the way we do it is wrong and the way they do it is right. Uh -huh. And unfortunately, both of those reactions fall into a level. Chavez et al. have a scale of diversity development, um, but it basically follows the same categories as most of our 
intercultural competence mm-hmm. development models. And the lowest level is dualism, one side good, one side mm-hmm. bad. And most of our language students fall into that category mm-hmm. of they encounter difference and they create a value judgment about it one way or the other. And I, as a teacher, get really excited when people do the positive value judgment, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Because, sure. yes, it's so cool. I'm the same way. I love the way they do it. Um, and unfortunately, that is keeping students in that baseline of good versus evil, yes yeah. versus no, that right. dualistic approach. So critical engagement with difference means that we reserve value judgments and explore differences within groups and across groups. Uh, there's a couple things you can do right from the beginning. One is to make it clear that we're not going to use value judgments. Like, I can't help but feel good or bad about things. Like, I can't help what happens in my head and my heart. Sure. But we're not going to say, I like this better, Mm -hmm. or this is preferable, or this is worse. We're going to reserve judgment. um, And we're going to examine not only what's different, once again with the air quotes, us versus them, Mm -hmm. we're going to think about how people are different within groups. So there's no American way to eat breakfast. Mm -hmm. There there are big generalizations about the kinds of things Americans eat. But if we did a quick survey of the class, which is easy in a first semester Mm -hmm. food unit, we would find that there's a lot of diversity of what people had for breakfast today. And so I'm, as an instructor, able to find various examples just by going on to Instagram and finding mm-hmm. some hashtag desayuno, right? Mm-hmm. I can find some various diverse examples of people who eat breakfast in a particular location across an entire language community. So um, to help students understand that there's no such thing as a singular monolithic culture. Yeah. There's no particular group. Another way we can do this is by bringing in traditionally excluded groups into our classroom. My Spanish textbook really focuses on white people in Spain mm. and people of, I, I don't know, mixed ancestry in mm-hmm. Latin America. Mm-hmm. But yep. everyone has a sort of stereotypical look of what you would expect right. a Spanish pe- speaker to look like. Sure. It's really frustrating. Yep. In my class, we talk about Korean Argentinians who live in Buenos Aires and are exploring how their heritage and their Argentine identity mm-hmm. work together. And we look at Instagram to find out what they had for breakfast today. Um, <laughs> nice. So just exploring the groups that haven't traditionally been represented and focusing on those individuals yeah. can be a really strong way to critically engage with mm-hmm. difference because it shatters the notion that there's a neat Venn diagram of my yeah. culture and their culture. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I love to hear that because I feel beyond you know, learning about language and culture, I feel like I see so much of the challenges that we deal with as a species are about that, that struggle to sort of look beyond binary ways of thinking. And yeah, I just think that's a, such a a touching and essential thing to bring into the classroom. And because you're talking a bit about social context and how it affects language teachers and students, um, and that you strive for your classroom to be a place where students transform. Can you talk a bit more about that, about that transformation? About transformation. Yeah. So uh, this actually dovetails perfectly into what you just said about binary ways of thinking, because uh, human brains want 
to put things in categories. Mm -hmm. And this works the same way in language acquisition as it does in other kinds of learning. So when you're learning another language, you're collecting language data, collecting language data, and then while you're engaging with the meaning of the language data, your brain is trying to sort that data into some big categories. And it takes a while for those categories to sort out, and then you start getting the categories in place, and they don't account for all the exceptions. And so after mm-hmm. you've put the categories in place, you have to go in and fill in exceptions. Um, and there's a really sort of specific path that we follow in language acquisition across all languages. Yeah. Um, and very similar processes happen when we're learning other things. So um, our brains are always constantly about every experience we have collecting data and creating categories. And by the time we're in puberty, those categories are fairly fixed. Mm -hmm. We understand how the world works. We feel competent in the world. We can um, predict people's motives and actions. Um, It's a, a sports analogy that you sometimes hear is, you know, when you first start playing, everything moves really fast, but then the game slows down. Mm. And that's sort of what happens in real life. When you first start learning to drive, it's exhausting mentally for all the things you have to think of, but then the game slows down and now it's automatic. And so by the time you're in puberty, most things in life are just automatic. And those big categories your brain has constructed help you understand the world without having to critically engage with every difference because you can just file things away. The problem is that if you stick to those same categories that you develop in adolescence, which many people do, Mm. um, you are not going to have a very interesting life or be a very interesting person because you will be unable to see the world from other perspectives, to interpret reality in a new way, to connect with people who are different from you. You'll have to stick to a very small Mm -hmm. set of circumstances where those categories work in order for your life to make sense. And so transformative learning is the model of how people break free from what that those categories we term it your meaning perspective and in this jargon, how you break free from that existing meaning perspective. And basically you have to have an experience that puts you off balance a little bit. Mm. It makes you question, maybe the way I understand things doesn't work in this situation. How Mm. could that possibly be? Mm. And what's interesting to note, coming back around to the affect, is that a strong emotional attachment to the person causing you this imbalance is really helpful to smooth out the experience. Um, If you feel off balance by someone you don't care about or maybe even are suspicious of, Now they're the enemy for making you feel that way. And you can go back to your safe category that doesn't include them. But if that person is someone you care about, then now you're like, well, this person is a good person and they're my person. And how could they be making me feel this off balance? If you can get to that point and then engage in a a long process of critical reflection and trying out new roles, this is actually a really important part of transformative learning is that you have a safe space to experiment with being someone new, which, you know, we often think of college as a place where Mm -hmm. young people are experimenting with new identities and new roles. And that's so essential. I wish all adults for their entire lifespan had safe places Mm. to experiment with new roles and new identities. Um, And then eventually you integrate, once you've gone through all this experimentation phase, then you've just, you were able to make a clear value judgment. Which of these things 
do I want to retain as part of who I am and how I engage the world and which things do I want to leave behind? And um, the great thing about transformative learning is that we're constantly doing this process. Sometimes it happens very quickly. Sometimes it takes our whole life to get to the end, but it's, it's how we become better people. And so I'm so excited about transformative learning because it's what I did my dissertation on. (laughs) So I have like the most content knowledge on this, but The data that we have shows that language classrooms at the college level, which is what I study, are really fertile places Mm -hmm. for transformation um, because of the the constant critical engagement with difference Mm -hmm. that learning Mm -hmm. a new language requires. So the students that I've had the chance to meet who were experiencing transformation in the language classroom, sometimes it was the linguistic forms themselves and just things like, you mean, I, I can't say please and thank you all the time? Mm. People don't do that in this culture? Well, yeah. how do I show them I'm friendly and harmless mm-hmm. if I can't say please and thank you all the time? <laughs> oh, fascinating. So the linguistic forms themselves can be the yeah. source of it. Um, pragmatics, which is also sure. part of what... Um, things like the concept of verb endings, even. The fact that things mm. decline, have declensions, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. So things that mechanical mm-hmm. can even mm-hmm. be sources of transformation cause people to think that, man, maybe the way I did it isn't the only way. That's yeah. so, so essential for growth. Yeah. And you know, what I also liked when you were talking about transformative learning was connecting with others who are on the same journey mm-hmm. so that we don't only think about You know, how can we engage with people in the target culture, maybe in the target language community? But thinking about the immediate context of the classroom and and, because I think sometimes those are lost opportunities, right? To really allow students to engage with one another in the classroom and that 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 is actually the context in which student learning is happening. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for for mentioning that. I did not mention that in my description of the transformative learning cycle But it actually, um, we have data going all the way back to the 70s on transformative learning processes Mm -hmm. for adults. And this is one of the keys in all the major Mm. research that's been done is people who feel isolated, like they're the only ones having this important experience, um, are going to find a way to fix the problem. Like this is something that's happening to me. I'm going to find a way to Mm -hmm. mend this and go back to True. my community, sure. um, but people who feel like they have a community, then they're on a shared journey with other mm-hmm. people, um, find, can find a way forward, mm-hmm. can find new communities to be a part of, right? And so I, I think I did not earlier in my teaching career understand how important the connected classroom was. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was really thinking about always facing outward. outward. Yep always thinking about what was happening in target language mm-hmm, communities. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how many of my students had to leave my classroom to find a study abroad experience mm-hmm. or a local community organization where they got that yeah. shared community, a feeling like we were all in this together. And it's yeah. something I've really focused on, especially in the last few years. And sure. very specifically since COVID, yeah. Yeah. I have found that student community is one of the most mm-hmm. being intentional about creating community with my students is one of the m- most important things I can do to create a culture of care yep. and safety and acceptance. And it's what's going to make them feel like um, 
engaging with difference in my classroom isn't scary. It's actually something we're all in this together, and and I'm welcome here. Mm-hmm. Nice. <sighs> I know these are such beautiful concepts. <laughs> it's I love like it. everyone doesn't get to research this. Some yeah. people have to research like historical changes in verb forms in the 1700s. And I think that's beautiful too. But this, it's like talking about religion. Like we get to just love people professionally when you're a language teacher. It's so good. (laughs) Well, so on on that note, what has students' feedback been or or what transformations have you seen in your students? Um, So I will tell you that as a teacher, I don't always get to see my Mm. students transform because transformative learning is such a long process. Um, So I've gotten to witness transformation as an embedded researcher in other people's classrooms, and Mm -hmm. that's been life-changing for me. Um, Last night in the talk, I told a story um, in some published data from several years ago, but a student named Ten who um, worked at the zoo and would have thoughts of actually committing acts of violence against multilingual people who were at the zoo on Mexico Day. And I couldn't stand the idea that there was a whole day just for mm-hmm. people from Mexico and that they would have the audacity to speak Spanish in public. And he brought those ideologies about uh, English-only ideal yeah. into the classroom with him. But by the end of the course, um, partly because of the very strong connection he had with the instructor who was a, a native speaker of Spanish— mm-hmm. Um, he felt like she, the way she was presenting herself and her culture and her experiences was so compelling that it affected the way he saw everyone else who spoke Spanish. Well, maybe they have interesting stories too. Maybe they've done a lot of cool things too. And his interest in multilingualism changed from really violent rage to, wow, I hear they're speaking a different language. Maybe it's Spanish. Maybe I can practice my Spanish Mm -hmm. with them. So just a a radical transformation. There were other, in that same study, there was a a woman in her 40s, an African-American woman, a single mother, who was back to school as in order to have a second career and was shocked to find out that the social justice issues that were so important to her and her community and that she'd spent her entire adulthood working in local organizations and fighting for these fights were also happening in other places. Mm-hmm. So in her first semester Spanish class, her instructor did a very small mini lesson on um, Las Mariposas, the three Mirabal sisters mm-hmm. in the Dominican Republic fighting against a dictator. And um, they did a mini lesson and then watched the Salma Hayek movie. Mm-hmm. And it was life-changing mm-hmm. for her to feel that strong yeah. connection of women banding together to fight issues in their community. Um, and I, I could tell you so many stories. Yeah. They're all published data. You can go read yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but I also want to warn people that if you're going to engage in this kind of work, sometimes we're just planting the seeds. We're not doing the harvest. So you uh-huh. might never know how your students are transforming. However, with problem-based learning, we have a structure that can give our students the tools to move past the critical thinking and into the trying on new roles and the being part of new communities phases that really lead to transformation. So one example is we had a unit in a second semester class I taught years ago in Michigan um, where we were 
The whole point of the class was to describe different points of colonialism. If we, The official syllabus was that I had to teach all the past tenses in mm-hmm. the second semester. <laughs> so I was like, colonialism, we're going to, every unit's going to be about different points in the past. Nice. Um, and so in one particular unit, it was related to food, and we talked about chocolate in the new world um, and the role of chocolate in the new world and the role of chocolate today. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting readings was an infographic about the major chocolate producers who also have been cited for child slavery hmm. in their production methods. Yeah. And it's all, the, it's all the big names. It's all the candies sure. that we give out at Halloween. It was an easy-to-read infographic in the target language, and then we compared that to some, some of what we had learned about chocolate in the new world mm-hmm. and, you know, in the 1600s, 1700s. Um, And this was so, this easy process of, you know, what's the role of chocolate in colonialism? And then reading a couple of articles and having a little bit of a low-level discussion was so meaningful to her that she wrote a letter to the snack bar of our college asking them to remove all of the chocolates that weren't fair trade. Wow. It was not acted upon. Nothing came of it. But she, you know, (laughs) sent me a copy of the letter, included me in her campaign. That's awesome. And, um, yeah, it was really meaningful to me because you don't often get to see how students take those lessons outside of the classroom. But that's one Hmm. example I'll never forget. Mm -hmm. Nice. Stacy, we could keep talking forever here. This is this is all. I, so... I could. And y'all's questions are so fun. <laughs> I like these questions. So for those listeners who want to learn more and who want to maybe read up on on more of the um, the studies that you've done and the research, where can our listeners find out more? And and you do need to put in a plug for that third book you're you're yes. writing right now about. <laughs> So stressful. Models. Will this book ever come out? I've been writing it for it years will. and years. <laughs> um, hopefully soon. Hopefully in the next year, six months. <laughs> uh, we're in revisions on this book. So um, my co-author, Dr. Claire Knowles, and I have a book coming out eventually that's called um, Problem-Based Language Learning. Um, that it's a, it's basically a series of teaching guides of of how to craft good questions, how to find good resources, how to develop community building collaborative mm-hmm. activities. Um, so very, very practical in nature, not a typical academic book. Um, however, I think there, my understanding of problem-based learning has come from a couple sources. One is a fantastic online teacher community. Mm-hmm. There's so many teachers actually doing this work, but they don't have the you know, academic terminology that I describe it with, but they're doing this work. They're posing interesting problems. They're asking their students to collaborate to learn about how people are working to solve them. Um, So I would very highly recommend the work of another one of my frequent co-authors, L.J. Randolph. He wrote a blog series for um, University of Arizona's Circle Center Mm -hmm. a while back that's fantastic. I'll give you the link to that blog series. Um, he and I have also done a couple presentations on similar topics. I think the important thing to keep in mind about problem-based learning is that it's not a blueprint. It is a series of informed strategies. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go all in on problem-based learning. Your whole course doesn't have to be problem-based learning backward design. You can say, 
Um, we're going to do a food unit. My textbook presents the food unit in a certain way, and my department asked me to follow a certain syllabus and include certain textbook activities. What interesting question can I ask at the beginning of the unit that's going to get students thinking about ethical eating or about differences in how people eat within and Mm -hmm. across cultures or issues of power and difference in a way that's different from just let's go out for tapas or whatever the (laughs) the food unit is presented at in your textbook. How can I bring in a couple of additional resources that complexify Mm -hmm. the questions so that things don't seem easy to answer so that students realize that they have to get a lot of different perspectives to have the complete picture Um, I love social media posts in the target language Mm. for this. Mm. Um, And uh, how can I get students talking to each other about these issues? So I find that a lot of what we do in classrooms when students are working with each other is students learning about each other, Mm -hmm. which is great. But most of the conversations that I have in real life aren't me learning about you or me learning about you. Mm -hmm. It's us talking about some mutual point Mm -hmm. of interest Mm -hmm. or some mutual topic. So how can I get students actually engaging in the types of conversations on these topics that they might have in real world settings? Um, Less of what's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast and more of have you ever had this Mm -hmm. for breakfast Mm -hmm. or do you, like, who of the four people we read about in this unit, whose breakfast is, you know, the most interesting? Yeah. Um, things like that. Yeah. I go on and on. <laughs> Stacy, thank you. Before we sign off, uh, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn, etc., that makes you giggle. So please share that word with us. Giggle. I giggle at everything. I'm a notorious <laughs> giggler. Um, but, okay, so I'm duolingoing a couple of languages right now, Scottish, Gaelic, and Swedish. Mm. And and Swedish is the word bra, which is spelled B-R-A, which is underwear for English speakers. But it, it means, like, good or fine. So, mm. like, if it's, a like, a, a bra kid... You know, a good, good-looking, hearty, nice kid. That is so interesting. Yeah. And that will make for a really interesting hashtag. Hashtag bra. The extent of the giggles are, are forthcoming. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I um, like it. Great. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Wonderful. Stacy. thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Thank you for having me. I had so much fun. Next week, we will hear more about FLIP, the foreign language introduction program offered by Cornell's Ein Audi Center. Until then, auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.